Welcome to this week's episode of the Casual Shooters Podcast. Today it's just me and Huggy. Leo couldn't make it. Hey. He got stuck. He's blocked out by a firewall. What are the odds? I'm sure he's ranting and raving as we speak. <laughs> this week we have another guest. This is an awesome, another awesome guest. It's Scott Sigmund. He's a vice president of Accuracy International, located right here in Fredericksburg. So we're going to talk to him for a little bit, find out about some Accuracy International rifles and the history behind it. So let's go ahead and bring Scott in now. Hey, Scott. Yeah, good afternoon, gentlemen, and good afternoon, everyone out there in podcast land. There you go. Uh, so, Scott, uh, we know you're, as I've introduced you, you're vice president of Accuracy International. I assume the North American branch, or I don't know how you term that. Yeah, we're we're AI North America. We're um, you know a subsidiary of AI Ltd, which is based in Portsmouth, England, and our um, uh, we service the North American market, which is the fifty states. The, uh, Canada is serviced out of the UK, so we cover the fifty United States. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Scott, how did you? Actually, we're going to back up for a second. What we normally do is ask them surprise questions to get to know our guest. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the first question we typically ask is, what's your favorite movie? Oh, my God. I'm so not a movie. <laughs> um, yeah, that's... And no, favorite. it cannot be an Accuracy International documentary. No, so I'll... I'll I'll preface that I, my wife and I have not been to the theater in just about five years. And I, it, a lot of it's due to kind of the, I just feel like a lot of people in this country are being um, dissed by Hollywood and I have a hard time giving them money. I hear that. Uh, but the last movie, uh, and this is, this dates me a little bit. I absolutely love the movie Grand Torino. Uh, oh, it. another Clint Eastwood fan. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, I thought Clint Eastwood was brilliant in Grand Torino, and I could totally watch that movie five more times and enjoy it every time. It is amazing. Yeah. I had to, I had to when they interviewed me and asked me the question, I had to go with the outlaw Josie Wales. Oh, yeah? I did. <laughs> Absolutely love that movie, but I I, lo I love so many of his movies. It's yeah, well, crazy. That's kind of a interesting contrast, young young Eastwood and old Eastwood. You know, it's kind of uh, almost at bookends of his movie career. Yeah, darn near. Yeah. Oh. All right, throw one at him, Chris Huggy. Oh, okay. Well, here's a question for you. And again, we're just, it's just getting you to know you and having some fun questions, but what is your favorite book to read? What is one of your favorite books, authors that you um, read? It's probably a bit easier than the movie question. Um, I'm a big fan of Ayn Rand. Um, okay. The author of The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. And, and a lot of sort of smaller books on, you know, on her various theories. And um, um, Rand, those are deep reads, uh, those books. There's there's a lot in an A and Rand 
book, but um, anybody that reads Rand today would look around at our world and our country, and you you have to marvel how on point she was. Um, the Fountainhead was she started writing that book in the late 1930s, and I believe it was published. Um, not long after the end of World War II, and reading it today, um, you know, we look around and we think, wow, we, we've been in this, this socialist leftist game. You know, not, not to steer the conversation too far into politics, but you did ask what was one of my favorite books. Uh, my 18-year-old son likes Ayn Rand. Really, really, yeah. I'm, I'm impressed that that's not a book that many 18 year olds can. Nope, I agree. I was surprised. I, I would venture he can read that book another five times throughout his life and appreciate it. I totally agree. Okay, so what? Uh, what's your favorite caliber? Oh, um. I have several, but a favorite caliber, um, I would say my all-around favorite is probably the 6.5 by 4.7 Lapua. Okay. So slightly, are, are you guys familiar with that cartridge? Um, I can't say that I am mm -hmm. from a ballistic standpoint, so I'd be curious to hear why. Yeah, so it's, it's a sort of... Very similar to a 6.5 Creedmoor, but it's, um, I, I got into shooting it before Lapua was making Creedmoor brass cases. And it's, uh, it was designed uh, kind of like the Creedmoor to be an all out high accuracy cartridge. And so everything about the design is right the net, the Creedmoor, the casing, runs a small primer. Uh, we'll drive a 140 and mid 2700 to targets with a fairly long distance hunt with it. Um, it's, it's that easy to load for. It's a lot like a 308. It's hard to build a bad load. Mm -hmm. Okay. In fact, I'll likely be shooting one uh, Saturday over at Quantico. There's a one-day PRS that I'm registered for, even though it's going to rain. <laughs> um, but I'll probably, uh, I'll probably put a, a six-five-four-seven barrel on my rifle and shoot that. Okay. Yeah. And it, they're just yeah, I had to. I haven't had the opportunity to shoot the 338 myself. I do want to. I've uh, heard a lot of, you know, stuff about the 338. Um, uh, the next rifle I actually wanted to get was the Ruger Precision 338 myself uh, and try that. Uh, but after, it's, I had to say, after looking at a lot of stuff, especially when Dave introduced me to AI, and I really started looking at a lot of the rifles you all have designed and, and everything. I was kind of like taken back, and I'm like, wow. You know, my eyes were open to another um, another realm, and I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> Look at this. <laughs> yeah, the, the 338 Lapua is one of the most all-around capable cartridges ever designed, and it truly is a long-distance cartridge. And 
fact, um, I think it was 20, 2019, the last year I shot the ELR Steel Challenge in Wyoming, I, I shot the 338 and loaded the 300 grain burger hybrids. And it's just phenomenally accurate. And that match has targets reaching out past 2000 yards and um, great capability with that round. I would offer just some basic advice is if you buy a 338, get a rifle that's truly designed to handle it. And that it's not a big field of guns. That's AI Barrett, um, Saco M10. Um, what else is reasonable? New uh, surgeon uh, made a 338XL that we, we developed a chassis for. That so you need a big enough action for those larger barrels, and um, a lot of the lower end guns are basically just. Um, there are guns that were designed for three or eight and thirty odd sticks and sort of been stretched out to fit a really big cartridge. And so they they they're kind of like a real hobby gun. They allow you to shoot the round, but they rarely allow the round to show you its potential. Like a sporter rifle. Yeah, you know, it's like a guy that buys an 883 Harley and then in five days he wishes he got 1,200 or a low rider or something like that, right? Right. You know where I'm coming from? <laughs> yes, sir. Like this dude, Froggy, my brother's neighbor, used to say, my brother Rick asked Froggy about the 883 and he says, Rick, he goes, it's for her. It ain't for you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Right. <laughs> so, right. So, um, yeah, three thirty-eight. So, how nice. did you come about? Well, first off, let's back up. How? What's? Uh, can you give us a, a one to two minute synopsis of the history of AI? Oh, two minutes. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I'll see if I can pack that into two minutes. So the co the company, uh, the original two guys that started the company are still alive today. And that's Dave Walls, who's still one of the owners, and Dave Kaig. And they worked together. They were trained machinists, and they were also competitive shooters. They shot in the same club. They worked together. And they were very accomplished shooters. And... They set out to kind of design a better uh, centerfire target rifle than really what they were able to buy at the time. And so they did, and then and then they became friends with a guy named Malcolm Cooper, and Malcolm was an uh, international champion shooter for England. Like Malcolm won two gold medals for England in two different Olympics. And so they got tied up and Malcolm shot 300 meters very successfully, like he won international championships. And uh, the two Daves built uh, rifles for Malcolm Cooper. And they were really good. I mean, they, they borrowed ideas from bench rest guns and uh, other target guns, and they kind of fixed everything they found rifles that were available and later on there there 
were approached to supply a rifle to a, a sniper rifle trial, the, the AMRD was looking to replace the MCL-47 an old woodstock sniper rifle and so they they took the action basically the action and barrel to put that barrel action on and that really that really was uh kind of a, a game changer uh paradigm shift in sniper rifles is that Aluminum chassis allowed a rigid structure to, to hang accessories on. You could make the magnet aperture perfect and keep it reliably from the 10-round box magazine. You could put a bipod on it. We, got, we all came through that world of fiberglass stocks on our tactical and target guns. and mm -hmm. We've all had stuff pull out of them, you know, and... and They've gotten a lot better at strengthening them today, but how many how many people do you know that pull the T slot rail out or pick rail or the bipod mount pulled out because it was basically a blob of fiberglass, you know, stuck in some very soft fill. And um so that aluminum chassis gave the gun incredible durability and a consistent rigid mounting surface. And so that rifle became known as the police marksman or the PM. And then not long after that, MOD uh, got serious about replacing that, um, that Lee Enfield rifle and had a full-on trial. And AI, who was very small, just a kind of almost a shed type operation at the time, ended up winning that trial. Oh, wow. The story that Dave Walt tells about that is really amazing, where the MOD were like, okay, well, now that you've been selected to supply the sniper rifle, we, we need to come and see where you make it. And they didn't really have much of an operation. To I, shut I think I've actually heard this story. So this, so this is a good one. Yeah, this is this absolute truth. And uh, so they had been sourcing some parts from a supplier, you know, like a job shop, which was a pretty large operation. And they went and got these guys to agree to let them tour the MOD guys through that place like it was AI. <laughs> and that's what they did. But that initial contract was to supply a little over 1,200 um, 308 sniper rifles to the MOD, and that gun became designated as the L96A1. And uh, it's also lovingly called the Green Meanie by you know British snipers who carried that gun in service. Um, but an enormously successful rifle. That's really like England's uh, version of an M40, if you will. But the difference between the M40 and the, the uh, L96 is that the L96 was designed soup to nuts for a sniper application. There's not a hunting, there's not a deer hunting L96, right? In our country, <clears throat> all of our sniper rifles until very recent times have been repurposed hunting guns and they always come with compromises inherent to 
a low cost design. Um, you know, they've been made to work remarkably well, but you know, as well as I do, when you're looking at an M40, you're not looking at much of a 700 Remington. Um, you know, it's, it's soup to nuts, something that's created over at Quantico and the right. 100 action is the only thing that came out of Ilian. And then that's heavily modified, uh, to become an M40. So, so there, I'm probably way past two minutes. But, <laughs> That's okay. But that winning that MOD um, trial and supplying the L96 put AI firmly in the world of sniper rifle manufacturers. And then being a European com company, other uh, European military organizations, as, as they sought to replace their aging platforms, AI uh, was invited to you know, participate in these various trials. And uh, the next big one was for the Swedish army and being in Sweden is very cold. And so some of the challenges with extreme cold, like minus 40 temperatures are that if, if you get moisture in the gun, it can be difficult to operate. And so the L96 got a number of modifications resulting from that trial, um, and it became designated the AW or the Arctic Warfare, and, and that's the one that kind of the rest of the world got to know very well. Yeah, that was the one I was most familiar with. Yeah, and um, I still have the first AW that I purchased. I think it's um, I think it's a '98 uh, serial number, so it's got some years on it now. And, yeah, uh, I guess so. Yeah, the fact that it's in the vault here at work, it stays here more than it does at home. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. I I still shoot it, but um, so the so the AW was born really out of that Swedish trial and a number of enhancements. They changed the safety design and made it more robust and reliable. Uh, they added features to the bolt. Uh, to help it clear frozen, you know, ice and water and debris. Uh, the, the safety shroud was changed. The design of the stock overlays were changed and went to injection molded uh, polymer. Okay. Um, so it, it really was uh, a, a whole suite of improvements. And from there, uh, the, the German... Uh, Army was the one that they ended up procuring the first 300 Win Mag and the first folding uh, chassis that AI produced. It was um, AWSM 300 Win Mag. And they, believe it or not, they are still running those rifles, albeit they've been back to the factory for a big upgrade. Oh, uh, sure. All those Swedish guns came back to the factory a few years ago for upgrades as AI added, you know, newer features, pick rails and folding stocks and uh, different bipod mounts and all of that. They, you know, rather than just toss it and go with a completely new gun, it was um, uh, viable for them to send them all back to the factory to kind of get remade uh, with the newest updates. Well, you don't hear that very often. Normally, it's like, oh, we'll just buy new ones. Exactly. Exactly. And then 
I think it was around in the late 1980s, AI got into a development, um, kind of a partnership with Lapua Ammunition on developing the 338 Lapua cartridge. And AI, I believe, was the first uh, commercial manufacturer to offer a 338 sniper rifle. And I think that it was followed shortly after by Saco with the TRG. And both of the companies, Saco and AI, I think for a very long time competed almost exclusively in 338 trials. There were not many players for a very long time. Yeah, uh, I can see that. Yeah. But that, that 338 Super Magnum kind of marked uh, an end point of what you could do with that basic AW action. And then um, I think it, so SOCOM had been toying around with the idea here in the United States of having a 338. And they talked about having a trial for years, right? Well, then it finally became serious and they had the first uh, solicitation, I think it was in 2011 or 2010. And they had released a very detailed draft specification and um, AI, like several other companies, developed uh, a rifle to address that. And that was the first generation of AX. And the um, the most fundamental change on the AX is they started with a clean sheet of paper on the receiver, and that action was truly designed to handle that big 338 cartridge. The barrel diameter got bigger, the action got bigger, the bolt got bigger, the breech got stronger. So when, this, you, when I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. When you say the action got bigger, did it get thicker? Is that what you mean? Like just what what changed with the action yeah so so the barrel tenon uh around the you know the chamber increased in diameter by three millimeter well that's a big move that's like close to a quarter of an inch and what that does is it adds a lot more material around that case when when you take a, an inch 250 piece of barrel stock and, and you ream a 308 chamber in it, well, that's 475 thou diameter. And then you can punch it out to, you know, say a 308 up to a 300. Now you're at 535. And then when you ream that out further to a 338 lap, well, what is that six something? I mean, you don't, your wall thickness around that cartridge is, is getting kind of marginal now and that chamber starts depending to a much higher degree on the receiver for overall integrity of the system more than you would really want uh so with the ax going with that much larger diameter tenon and then the action had to grow to accommodate that bigger barrel um the strength of that thing made a huge move um that you know if you can if you can back up the case head that barrel doesn't need an action to safely fire that round it will handle it without the receiver right so uh other things that the ax brought was uh the the aw 338 and 300 win mag were five round single stack magazine architecture and so 
<clears throat> this gun runs a double stack mag in 338 just like the aw ran 10 rounds of 308 okay i mean i think most people acknowledge we have the best 338 magazine on the planet there's really not a good comparable product out there i think most of the other mags are polymer which uh, typically lack the durability of a good steel mag um other things we we went to a tubular forend architecture and that's when we introduced the key slot interface uh, which has been really successful and very strong um socom wanted to put rail like pretty much everywhere on the oh we got another guest in there <laughs> <laughs> yeah i have three great danes occasionally they like to wander over and get in on the camera action wow i thought that was a call <laughs> Good. Um, yeah, so so the AX was introduced to the market around two. I think we brought Hot Show in 2010. And that that was a big paradigm shift in features and performance um, of the system. And then later that was further upgraded to multi-caliber capability. Uh, the AXMC, uh, which we still make in a law enforcement version. And that really gave the user the ability to swap barrels and cartridge, complete cartridge families. Like if you're experienced at doing it, you can do a caliber change <laughs> under a minute. If you've never done it before, it might take you two minutes. And we migrated that technology down to the short action AX, um, you know, which we still make. And that really brought, that kind of ended uh, sort of the monopoly market that custom gunsmiths had on, you know, like if you need a new barrel, you got to ship the gun off and hope they have it back to you within six months. If you got an AI, you you don't need a gunsmith. We you know we can ship you a barrel that's all chambered up and guaranteed the headspace on uh, your action. And I I remember I mean that that was even advertised when Malcolm came to the school in the early '90s. That was one of the benefits. Uh, let's say Chris or me we have a, an AI and we want to rebarrel it ourselves. What kind of tools do we need and how long does it take? Well, a modern AI, you need a four millimeter hex drive and you need a barrel, whatever barrel you're putting on. And um, if it involves, let's say it's an AXMC, right? And you bought it as a 338. And now you want to run a 6.5 Creedmoor. Well, to take the barrel off, you need a four millimeter hex drive and you loosen a clamp screw about. Uh, one and a half to two turns and literally just take the barrel off with your hands and threads into the receiver with a hex like screw that. yeah the hex screw had there's a clamping mechanism that draws a section of the bottom part of the receiver tight into those threads and once that's brought up to torque of about i don't know 50 inch pounds you would then need about 90 foot-pounds to move the barrel. So they're very, very efficient clamp. Okay. The barrel threads in in the conventional way. Uh, it doesn't use a breech extension architecture like some of the modern 338s do. 
but it also opens the door for a lot more access to barrels. Once you have a breech extension, you have to depend on that manufacturer to supply that part. And a lot of them are very precious about uh, selling breech extensions. They want to sell you an entire barrel with a breech extension fitted. And, and I think one of the reasons for that is that's how they have to set up headspace. I think it's fundamental to the design that headspace is set uh, with the barrel still chucked into the wave, so to speak. And so some of the guns available in 338 today, um, when you buy a replacement barrel, it may have to also come with a new bolt head. And so you've bought a little mini system to put into your rifle to achieve headspace, and we don't do it that way. Okay. Um, like it, the the AXMC with a very large bolt and lock ring, um, it's hard for those. Those don't lose headspace quickly through wear and tear and even very high pressure situations. Um, the, that breach is super durable. Um, we've had some 308s come in even with six lug bolts where guys will build some dangerously high pressure loads and <laughs> fire you know, a half a dozen of them, they might gain a little headspace. But I look at it, it's like, well, you bought an insurance policy there because the gun didn't blow up. Like we, believe it or not, I mean, you hear stories all the time, but we see them come in where guys have literally loaded 308s with pistol powder in them. And I'm telling you what, it isn't pretty, but I've never seen an AI explode yet. Wow, that's pushing the envelope goodness yeah. yeah i've got i have a barrel um on the cabinet behind my desk right now so um, a guy had taken delivery last year of a brand new axmc 338 and left a stainless steel laser bore cider in the muzzle and loaded her up and fired it and th that barrel split from the muzzle all the way back to the receiver <clears throat> and the crack goes into three the three front threads of the breech thread. Wow. And you know, he was able to open a bolt without any undue effort and take the case out and the receiver still passed headspace. <laughs> wow. That's yeah, impressive. Frank Green from Bartland Barrels was here yesterday afternoon and I, it's one of their barrel blanks that we, you know, we buy a lot of barrel blanks from them. And I said, hey, here's one of your barrels, Frank. And he went out to his car and brought one in to show me that a customer had loaded. It was a hunting weight barrel, but he had loaded a full case of pistol powder and a short magnum. And that was something to see. That guy went wow. to the hospital. Was really? Was that one was not on it? Mm, I don't know why people do that kind of thing. I don't know. Uh, best practice at the loading bench is only have the gunpowder out that you're loading. Everything else needs to be put away in a cabinet somewhere where you can't conveniently reach it. Yeah. yeah. So I guess it was, so I guess a, mistake. It was a mistake. You know, if you mess up cooking a dish in your kitchen, you can just scrape it into the trash can. But if you if you mess up at the loading bench, you can get an ambulance ride to the hospital. Not good. Not good. Yeah.
So yeah, um, wow, my how long are we on? How how many minutes am I into my two minutes now? <laughs> I think it's I only think three it's or four. Yeah, so that brought us up to the AXMC. I mean, do you want to ask questions or you want me to keep talking? Yeah, no. Um, all right, so, all right, so you guys started you guys with start. the whole bench rest and then sniper, sniper stuff. stuff. Okay, well, I think I'm yeah. getting a big echo with you. Yeah, not really bench rest, but um, positional type shooting like 300 meter in Europe. Uh, what they call full bore in Europe, which they shoot at Bisley, kind of like our our NRA high power series. Okay. Okay. Um, that was kind of the the driving factor to develop a better target rifle. But um, you know, I'll back up a little bit. the The original L ninety six and AW up to the um, up to the current. Uh, AXMC, those actions were always screwed and bonded to the chassis. And that was kind of a bench rest thing, the, you know, using both action screws and epoxy sort of bedding compound to, to make that action up to the stock system. It was a very robust and very bomb-proof uh, way to, to high up the action and chassis when we came out with the quick change barrel system um it's been a really robust system but maybe once every couple of years we get a gun in where some guy managed to twist the head off of the clamp screw and then to service that you have to unbond the action and replace the screw and rebond it so it's fairly labor intensive process to replace a very inexpensive part and so the current multi-cow gun which is the axsr has eliminated the bond and it's tied onto the chassis with five action screws and we we have enough testing and fielding of that system to have total confidence in the non-bonded approach as well our 50 cal by the way was never bonded from the beginning it, it always was just screwed to the receiver with like four large action screws. Interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, now, who? Now it seems like looking at the websites, you guys are now starting to market towards PRS shooters as well as military. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, we, yeah, that is correct. Um, here in the States, we got involved with uh, PRS competition, I think back around 2014. And when this, the series was kind of in its early days, um, it, it really was born out of, uh, a, from a bunch of guys that had cool tactical rifles like AIs and other guns. And they wanted to compete. And um, as the series really became popular and grew, then the, the rifles became a lot more specialized as is really inevitable. You know, if you know anything about Ipsic shooting and what happened with that sport, you know, it was born out at, you know, Arizona with Jeff Cooper and that bunch. And it really was like, you know, here's the pistols we 
can go buy at the gun shop and we're going to learn how to shoot them a lot better. And, and if you look at a, like a unlimited Ipsic gun today, I mean, it's, you never carry that as a defensive weapon. They're sort of freak shows and PRS guns haven't gone that far yet. Um, but there still are really no restrictions on the rifles. And so they've kind of evolved to be faster and more efficient to shoot from, you know, improvised uh, positions and barricades. And we we introduced in January the ATX, which uh, has a chassis architecture that's definitely geared toward that sport. Um, it also happens to be uh, certainly not giving up really anything as a sniper platform. It really carries forward all the key features that an AI sniper rifle has, but it's really an efficient gun to shoot off of uh, bags or a barricade or any kind of improvised surface. So, yeah, we are, you know, it's an acknowledgement that it's an important market here in the United States and abroad. I mean, uh, PRS-style competition is growing very much in Europe and South Africa and Australia and New Zealand. Uh, so the the reach of that sport has become very wide. I, hadn't, I knew about it in the U.S., but I was unaware of around the world. And the reason I was asking is uh, your ASR is 15.2 pounds without a scope and ammo. That's a... To be carrying around in a military role, that's a pretty heavy gun once you add scope and ammo. I have no idea where that feedback is coming from. <laughs> yeah, so on, on that SOCOM P-spec for the ASR, I think we could... You could have gone up to I believe it was 17 pound and we chose not to make the gun as light as we could make it because in large calibers like the 338 you you're trading off portability against shootability and and accuracy performance and we have a lot of data to support that so if we we kept uh, like compared to the AXMC 338, we added um, we added about 1.8 pounds of weight in the barrel of the ASR, but overall the gun weighs very much the same as the original AXMC. But it's a far more shootable gun because it concentrates that mass around the bore. Okay. So in terms of you know when you uh, when you have to hook a bullet up with a target that's out at fifteen hundred or farther, that gun needs to work for you, and that isn't going to be the lightest gun out there. No, I agree. I agree. Uh, so like, we could knock some weight off that thing by putting a carbon wrap barrel on and a lighter profile, and we could take weight out of it in a lot of ways but when that thing when you squeeze the trigger uh you lose everything through the scope and then then you're having to reacquire the target and see if you actually hit it or not so that's the so that's 338 the, then yeah the you mentioned the asr that, yeah. that's yeah. one under discussion 
Okay. Uh, now, does that come in a different caliber? Yeah, the, the primary sniper round of the ASR um, is the 300 Norma Magnum, which is probably as large a 30 as you would ever want to shoot. Uh, so that 300 Norma will drive a 220 grain bullet at just about 3,000 feet per second. So the recoil on that, while not at 338 levels, is also pretty high. Because you're burning... God, close to like 89 grains of gunpowder behind that bullet. Wow. And people often forget that the propellant charge factors enormously into the, the recoil pulse of the rifle. Once the bullet exits, you have a basically a rocket engine expelling whatever mass of propellant was back in that case. Solid fuel rocket, right? Goodness. Goodness. Yeah. So big cartridges just hit back harder. Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the things I had, I had shot, I'm, I'm going to assume it was the AW338 back in the mid-90s. Yes. And I always compared that recoil to a 12-gauge, your standard 12-gauge double lock buck very manageable you could shoot it all day um and i i always assumed it was based on one the gun was not the lightest gun but it wasn't super heavy either but also the muzzle brake on the end now do you how much do you guys spend designing the muzzle brake to help with that recoil as well yeah, I think by the mid-90s, you probably shot a gun with uh, uh, the newer design muzzle brake, which was a much larger four-port brake. Mm -hmm. the, my earliest recollection of shooting an AI-338 is it was about the most painful rifle I had ever shot because it had a brake. It had a muzzle brake that wasn't really designed to arrest recoil so much as it was made mount a suppressor on the end of the gun okay and so the the port efficiency of that early break was terrible and they they really were tough on recoil the newer break is like a sea change in recoil reduction they're very effective and uh, in the last year and a half here in the U.S., we've been sourcing a four-port vector, rear vectoring brake from APA to put on those guns. And that's another move in, in recoil reduction effectiveness. Those newer brakes are really efficient. The trade-off is side and rear blast. Right. And in, in those big cartridges, like in 300 Norma and 338 Lapua, I don't even want to shoot them. I mean, if I can't shoot those guns suppressed, I don't want to shoot them. Really? Uh, oh, they're they're horrible. Those those big breaks, and I think a lot of the shooters, like in PRS today, are going to lose a lot of hearing at a very young age because of the, the multi-port breaks that are on guns now. Even small caliber guns, the, the, the angle brakes are just absolutely brutal. Um, we were leaving in a couple of weeks' time to go down to Florida for the AI Long Range Classic. It's a match we've sponsored. It will be six years running now. And 
Um, at the end of the first day of the match last year on Saturday, um, God, you know, we there's almost nobody shooting a suppressor anymore. And I remember walking back toward the parking area and talking to Doug Koenig, who shoots uh, RPR for Ruger. And Doug just went back to the hotel and hung out with his wife. I mean, he was sort of, you're just sort of so beaten up from the noise that you don't feel like going out for dinner and socializing with your friends. And I think it's really done a lot to take some of the fun out of it. Um, so, you know, that's one of the down breaks, uh, make guns more manageable, but they also make them harder on the shooter. Now, are people using double hearing protection in those matches? I hope so. <laughs> I didn't know if it was like a standard or um, that's just what people were doing or not. I mean, I think I, you know, even with double hearing protection at the end of the day, you just don't want to be around gun noise anymore. Right. I mean, I love guns and I love shooting as much as anybody walking, but um, at the end of a long day of shooting with, you know, braked guns in close proximity it's like i've just had enough uh, i would love to shoot some matches where the only thing allowed is suppressors <laughs> okay <laughs> i love suppressors more and more no i have not heard about this ai long range classic um mm -hmm. we're in florida and what's the setup for the match uh, it's near baker florida at a uh shooting facility called Altus Shooting Solutions. And uh, you can look up the match on Practice Score or the PRS website, or you can go to Altus website and find it. But Okay. Uh, okay. It's just a two-day. It's, it's one of the series matches. It's really well attended. It's uh, one of the early season matches after people have been cooped up for the cold part of winter and everybody's ready to go have some fun shooting. And the weather's usually good down there in the panhandle in March. You know, it can, it can be chilly sometimes, but mostly by the afternoon, it'll be in the upper seventies and really nice. I was, um, la a year ago, this past, this past weekend, I was in, um, frostproof shooting the USPSA Florida open. And it was 80 degrees. It was fantastic weather. So it was right, just about an hour south of Orlando is where it was. So yeah, yeah this time of year down in Florida is quite bearable. Definitely. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I will definitely look that up on practice score and uh, follow that. That'll be interesting. Yeah, yeah. And uh you should consider coming to Quantico and shooting some of those one-day matches. We'll be there as often as possible. Now, they're going to be uh, – that's just brand new, isn't it, starting that up? Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the one of the officers out there that's over the, the shooting programs has undertaken to run – I think he's running seven or eight uh, Rimfire series matches and seven or eight uh, PRS one day matches. So, so NRL. Um, yes, I think it's a combination of like NRL X and Mars series, which is 
Mid Atlantic Remfire series. And okay, um, so the that NRLX series gives the RO a lot more flexibility in designing courses of fire, whereas the straight NRL series has a very tightly canned course of fire month over month where everybody across the entire country is shooting exactly the same COS. Okay. I had no idea. Yeah. And that, that can be fun too, especially if you're newer to rimfire shooting, those NRL matches are very good. And this day and age with ammo prices is probably a lot more affordable. And I'll, I'll, uh, give another uh just a shout out for all of the 22 rimfire match series it's about the only form of shooting that i've seen uh moms and dads bringing their sons and daughters out to shoot and so that's very encouraging to see yeah, you know, it's, it's sort of family friendly sport and I, I like that a lot it's fun to see kids coming out with like a a Ruger 1022 or some gun like that and having a great time. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. awesome. Yeah. I think anytime you get kids involved, it's fantastic. We have to. We have to. I mean, we, we can't take this to the grave with ourselves. No, it's really the only way to maintain uh, our rights, too. So is to make that generation aware and get them involved, and hopefully they vote that way. Absolutely. Now, which range are they using at Quantico for the PRS shoot? Uh, range four. Okay, yeah. so they're just going to put targets up on the in between the berms, um, the lateral berms, and then downrange. Yeah, I I printed out the the COF for the PRS match uh, yesterday, and I think the um, the first five stages. Uh -huh will be at uh, the seven or 800 yard line. And then the second five move back to a thousand. So I don't will run in uh, a, a split, so to speak. I think they'll run us all through uh, one to five and then we'll back up and, and shoot the second five at a different distance okay. and okay. different barricade setups. I guess the, uh, Colonel out there isn't worried about the range being tore up. You know, I, I don't know. I don't personally know the regulations, but I think they are. We, we were out there uh, Friday a week and a half ago uh, doing some barricade training with uh, classes going through the school. And so they've got steel out there that's well forward of the impact area, but they're up on T-post where, you know, if you shoot a miss, that bullet is still going to fly on to a berm unless you miss really bad, of course. But, um, you know, you always have the bullets splatter off the plate. But honestly, if you're moving the T-post around frequently, you don't, you don't really suffer any appreciable damage from it i probably did more damage with my truck in the snow and ice on the curb than those bullets will ever do yeah i've been stuck down about the 100 yard line in the grass so i know that feeling well <laughs> did a little mud plowing out there yeah <laughs> now when did you guys go away from the 
thumbhole stocks. You can still have a thumbhole. Oh, can you? Yeah, uh, not on, not on the ASR and the ASR, but on the um, like the AX series. There there's still stock sides available to run those as a thumbhole. You know, the clamshell mm -hmm. classic AI stock sides. But we we went to the pistol grip configuration with the first generation AX in 2010, and it. You know, once we introduced that, there was really no going back. People vastly preferred it. Hell, I I, I love that thumb hole, and I preferred the pistol grip. So, um, and now the the current generation of gun has, um, you know, it's got a full on AR grip interface. On on ASR, we rotated it ten degrees to allow the grip to come to quite vertical. Um, on the ATX, there are newer grips that are made to be very vertical, so we went with the standard orientation on that chassis. Um, but the, you'll be intrigued by this. The very first uh, AI that had a pistol grip was an L96 Covert folder. And um, I didn't even know they existed until Marty Bordson at Badger Ordinance bought one and sent me photos of it. Wow. Yeah, I've never even heard of that. And then I, I sent an inquiry to one of our guys in the UK, and it turned out that AI had made 12 of those guns um, back in the 80s. And for reasons that nobody knows today, they were exported to the United States. and there's got to be like 11 more floating around somewhere. Wait, exported or smuggled? <laughs> they, they, they had to, so those guns were uh, exported. Gunsight was the first importer of AI rifles into the U.S., and Marty's gun is engraved with a Gunsight uh, marking. Wow. And so, it, you know, it was uh, to be compliant with ATF regulation. I mean, they had to get an import permit to bring them in. Way right. So, so when I saw those pictures of that L96 covert and I was kind of juxtaposing it against the AX, I'm like, wow, there's a lot of family DNA. In those <laughs> I can only imagine how much one of those would go for today. Holy cow. Marty wouldn't tell me what he paid for it but he's an avid collector and I think it meant a lot to him to own it. And it's probably worth a lot more today. I think he's probably had it almost 10 years now. Yeah. I can only imagine how much that thing would run. So, but that would be, that would be a cool piece of history to have right there. If I could personally own an L96, that would be the one I would want. Okay. Super rare. All right. And so I, I, I had created a huge list of questions. Chris, do you have anything you want to jump in on? Are you good right now? Oh. <laughs> wow. Good morning. What's going on here? Hi. <laughs> Monopolizing the dialogue here. I, it's actually very educational, and I'm actually enjoying the history of AI and all the information that that you're putting out there uh, because even when i did some of the research itself on ai i was kind of like wow so even you're giving more 
information then I'm like, wow i did not know that and um uh, especially like with the thumb hole i saw that the i think it was the green meanie i think that one did that one have the thumb hole in it originally yes <clears throat> yeah it did yeah yeah and, so. and, and that is uh the og I mean, completely target gun oriented right there i mean the stock it was a very ergonomic stock for that period on like there had never right. been a sniper rifle that looked remotely like that L96 and that original PM um, rifle. I mean, they were they were kind of radical looking. And mm -hmm. you know, thinking about the look of that thing and that thumb hole, I'll never forget the first time I saw an AW rifle. A guy at my home club back then. I lived in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Um, brought an AI out and I thought, my God, that is the ugliest damn rifle ever. No, <clears throat> that is blasphemy. You know, but when, when I, the more time I spent with those rifles, uh, it did not take long to become a convert because when you saw the engineering and the features and the way that gun was built, I thought, my God, there's nothing else like this in the world. I mean, it, it had all yes. of the, all of the features you would want in a high spec custom target gun, but it was made for the battlefield. Uh, you know, when Malcolm brought it to the school and I got a chance to look at it, I immediately fell in love because look, I, I am an old school dude. I will take a 10 power unertal scope over anything they have today because I will beat you to death with that thing literally bludgeon you to death, put it back on my rifle, it'll hold zero, and I can continue to shoot. And that's what I loved about the AI with that aluminum chassis. I was like, I could drop this thing down a mountain, go to the bottom, pick it up with my 10 power inertal scope, and it's bulletproof. It's bombproof. Yeah. You don't have to worry about the stock coming away from the action. Nothing's going to jiggle loose. It's all one solid piece. You got a steel scope on top. I'm like, how can you go wrong? It's it's marine proof. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I still have a pair of Unertal 20 power target scopes. They're, they're the first real target scopes I ever owned. That's an old one. And I gladly would trade one for a 10 power M40 scope. Yes, I would too. I would trade your scope for one of those. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some things I wouldn't do for some things, but that, that could get me in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I was also, I had a question because, and I'm obviously I've known, I've shot AI um, when, again, going back to one of our earlier episodes, when Leo and Chris interviewed me, because we did a we did an episode where we interviewed each other, asking a lot of questions. Um, I told them that my favorite gun was the Accuracy International, bar none. Um, that is that is my dream gun right there. Um, now, where was I going with this? I just lost where I was going. Uh, oh, okay, but I was, <laughs> but I was on some of the import websites, uh, distributors, and I noticed that the six five Creedmoor offering was lined out, like it said six five Creedmoor, but then there was a line through the middle of it. 
Is it just that it's not available right now, or do you have any idea what what the? Because I I am a fan of the six five Creedmoor. Um. Yeah. Without knowing what model it is, it's hard to answer. But we still like the AX short action. We will still supply that as a six five Creedmoor. And in fact, I think we have to build out and test several of them in the next two weeks. And uh, the AT rifle uh, has, we probably sold that more in 6.5 Creedmoor in the last two years than we have in 308. Um, the, new, the new rifle, the ATX, uh, which you know we discussed was oriented toward uh, PRS and competition, that right now is only available in 6.5 Creedmoor. Okay. So, so if somebody wants to run a 308, they're just going to have to buy a 308 barrel and swap it. But um, yeah, so we're we're still very much uh, manufacturing and selling 6.5 Creedmoors. How popular are your rifles in the 308? Because it seems to be falling out of favor um, with the military and PRS style shooting. Uh, yeah, with military and PRS, you're absolutely right. Um, the, the rest of the world hasn't figured it out yet. And we still sell a lot of 308s. But, uh, you know, I, I've been, you know, I've danced with all of these uh, crazy, cool target rounds myself. But at the end of the day, um, if you need a hundred percent assurance that the thing is going to work, you you still want a three hundred eight, right? Yeah, I I mean I don't I don't can you, can you see that? Yeah. So that's three shots at five hundred and five yards with a three hundred eight and a twelve inch barrel, right? We're testing a covert gun that we're going to submit on military trial soon. Okay. Federal 168 match right there. Can you believe that? 12-inch barrel with, with a suppressor on it. And um, Really? What kind of velocity are you getting out of that? Or if you're allowed to say. Oh, it's no, there's no no proprietary data there. I think the velocity with a 12-inch barrel was like 2,300 and some change. So it so out to out to that five oh five. It's still supersonic and very accurate, and we extended out to about eight twenty, and okay. the bullet is definitely going subsonic out there. And while it was still accurate, it's it's getting some vertical in, in the group at eight twenty. But if you're talking about at center of mass shot, you don't want that thing pointed at you, right? I, I guess you're probably maxing out. Uh, supersonic, what, 700, roughly? Yeah, I, uh, God, I hope, I won't remember this correctly, but I ran the ballistics and marked the sound barrier crossing, and I think it was in the close 700 range. Yeah, that sounds yeah. about right. Yeah. So, okay. That's and then with a 12-inch barrel, we also, like subsonic, like the Lapua subsonic 200 CNR, at at a hundred meters, that thing is like stupid accurate. I mean, way sub MOA. Hmm. 
and very quiet. With a suppressor, I think the velocity was just under a thousand feet per second. So it's like super quiet. It's like 45 cal. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When it hits steel, it's still packing a punch. Yeah, I bet. Well, that's a, yeah, that's a, um, that's still a lot of energy. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I mean, Creedmoor, it is a great round. There's no doubt. And, um, a lot of those modern cartridges like the 6.5 Creedmoor, the 6.547, they were really clean sheet of paper designs to be accurate cartridges. When you look at the length of freebore, the neck design, the throat design, everything about them is off. Shoot small groups. And um, the 308, you know, going back all the years that that thing has been in service, that that's an amazingly accurate cartridge too. But it's also um, still probably the most highly developed cartridge in the world because it became a NATO round. So <clears throat> I still have a soft spot for 308. Right. Um and I mean, you're right. The six five ballistically is an amazing round. It's just you know, and I think a lot of people at the time just didn't want to look at it when it first was developed, you know. And it wasn't popular at the time, and so people weren't. And like you said, people weren't going to gravitate to that. Now people are seeing the the, the ballistic, you know, the math, and they're saying, "Wow!" And seeing how uh, how great this. Uh, this bullet is and now they're gravitating towards that so well i was going to ask you ask another thing with it is the fact that or at least add something i was going to say that i saw on your ai rifles which i kind of liked was the safety mechanism on there because you had to i call it a three-stage safety mechanism um uh, on your rifles so i i thought that was actually uh, really nice so, yeah, that, that goes back to the AW. I mean, it's a design we've been making over 30 years, and I can talk a little bit about that. The, it's it's a firing pin-based safety, not a trigger-based safety. So when you engage that safety to the first position, there's a cam in there that literally raises the firing pin cocking piece off of the trigger upper sear so the trigger no longer has any load on it whatsoever and in that first stage of the safety you can open the bolt and unload it and it is perfectly safe now Mm -hmm. you have to move with a live one in the chamber then you would want to draw it back to the second stage and that draws the firing pin back a few more thou off of the sear, but now it locks the bolt from moving. Mm-hmm. So if you just have to move with the gun hot, that's the way to do it. And uh, you can flick into the first stage and do a safe mode. Um, you know, most most of the designs that we're familiar with and the people in our country are familiar with are trigger-based safeties. And some of them, some of the more modern ones can be quite good, but they, 
I don't have the inherent level of trust in them that I do in safeties that physically block the firing pin from from striking the primer. And even the the ASR, our newest design, uh, we had to put a two position safety on that to meet SOCOM spec. And it's sort of a big AR ambidextrous 90 degree sweep safety. So it's different. It's not up there on the firing pin shroud like the classic AI safety, but it still draws that firing pin off of the, the, the trigger sear. Um, and there's a variant that they have designed for the European market that is also a three position and behaves just like that classic AI. So there's two versions of that, but we're still very much uh, a company that believes in mechanically blocking the pin. Well, I like it. I was very impressed with it when I uh, when I actually saw saw it and then saw the video uh, on the website. So, yeah, yeah. I, a lot of people don't understand the mechanics of those things and that video has everything uh kind of um you know you can see into the mechanism how it operates pretty cool mm -hmm. yeah going finishing off the six five i think it's taking a little while but i think people are starting to see the fact that it can be a dual role hunting and competition round with the distance you can get out of that thing but going back to the 308 it's still a very utility round i still like that one a lot and there's a lot of availability with the 308 65 not quite as much but it's getting there it's definitely growing in popularity now i noticed something else on your ax50 i saw you guys have a 45 moa rail on there mm -hmm. what with that rail, what type of distance are you looking to be able to achieve without having to hold high or anything like that? Uh, that will, with the scope on it, like a 5 to 25, a modern, you know, Schmidt Bender or Night Force, it's got about 130 minutes of movement. Um, with that 40 minute rail, you can get out to around 2,500 operating distance. That is nice. That's a long poke. That yeah. is a long way. Yeah. <laughs> you better yeah, have a yeah. nice clear scope or you're not going to see much at that distance. Yeah. Um, in the Western states where you typically go to, you know, shoot those distances, I mean, the optics we have today are staggeringly good. Right. Um, you know, you can, um, uh, I think my current my favorite scope for the last several years i've got two of them is the night force 5 to 25 beast uh which i was very sad to see disappeared from the 2021 catalog but um the glass in those things is amazing the click the, the turret clicks are the best of anything ever made uh they're absolutely bomb proof and i think they've got 100 and 30 minutes of travel vertically. That's that's nice. That's the one thing I've seen. It seems like we're losing travel uh, vertically. So, well, yeah, I mean, because people want more focal range, like uh, 
my next favorite scope is the seven to 35 night force, which is, I mean, it's been a triple crown win for them. That scope is enormously popular and it's very good. But in order to get out to 35 power, give up some travel, I think it's, um, God, don't quote me on this. It's like a 115 or 20 minute. You give up about a good 10 minutes versus uh, five to 25 scopes. And sometimes that, you know, that last little bit is what you need. You know, it's. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Docked at some of the shots I've been able to dial. I mean, with a five to 25 on a 30 MOA rail, like a. AXMC, you can get right out to about 2,000 with a 338. Like in, well, now that's altitude dependent. I'll qualify that. You need to, you need to be at elevation to get that kind of bullet performance. Okay. Well, I'm going to interject a little bit, but uh, with a statement because it's the L. Was it L one one five A three that the gentleman, uh, the British sniper, used to make the world record longest shot? Yeah, that would correct on that. Yeah, that'd be uh, Craig Harrison and L one one five A three. Correct. Uh, I believe yeah. the optic was uh, Schmidt Bender five to twenty five. Yeah, and that was what uh, two. 250 grain ammo to boot. They, they, they were not issuing 300 grain ammo uh, during that time frame. And, uh, but, you know, um, in Afghanistan, that was helped by altitude and uh, air density that was favorable to making a long shot. Still amazing you can identify something at that distance. It, it is really, and uh, you know, it, it all depends on the atmospheric conditions. Like I've shot out in the western states, and sometimes on a hot afternoon, if you're fairly horizontal with the terrain, it can be the mirage can be diabolical. But in the uh, early morning and late afternoon, if you've got some elevation, it's absolutely crystal clear. I mean, out to even few miles. Absolutely. Totally agree. I mean, you can see that just at Quantico shooting the thousand yard line, the mirage on the targets when it starts heating up out there. So yeah. if you're exactly, if you're close to the ground, that's going to be difficult in a lot of heat. You've yeah. got to be up off the ground so you don't see that. Yeah, absolutely. So Scott, are you ever going out and shot in the the? Uh, and I, I see it every, see it every now and then. But the king of the two mile competitions. Funny you should ask. <laughs> so I actually was involved in the very first two years that that competition was held at Raton, New Mexico. And I didn't know anything about it, but Dave Walls from AI was coming over to shoot the FCSA 50 Cal Shooters Association Championship, which is a thousand yard bench rest match for 50s. And the guy um, 
who was the president of FCSA at the time had dreamed up this King of Two Miles because he was kind of looking for a way to sort of expand the appeal and the kind of shooting they were doing with these big guns. Honestly, when you shoot a 50 at a thousand yards, you know that gun's got a lot more in it than poking a hole in a paper target at a grand. And Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the driving idea behind King of Two Miles. And so I I really helped organize that trip to Raton for Dave. And there were like five other guys that came over from the UK and they were kind of had a UK team. And I, I didn't shoot, but I got sucked into coaching them on this King of Two Miles. So I'm like, the hell is king of two miles and so i found out what they were doing i'm like my god i don't even know how fast these bullets are going so (laughs) two days before the match we we flew into denver and we staged all of our gear up at mile high shooting accessories who's our distributor in denver and one of their guys took us out to a range near fort morgan and we got velocity and and got some good dope on the guns. And I, I really, uh, the struggle was, uh, I was trying to build a ballistic curve for distances. I'd never shot anything like before. And a big part of the learning from King of Two Miles that first year was that the ballistic solvers were not very good past about 1500. Even at 1,500, they had gross errors. And so I I had been online using, we were shooting Hornaday AMAX bullets in all of these AX-50s these guys were shooting. And so I thought, well, I'm going to use Hornaday's uh, ballistic program. And I'd even called Dave Emery, who was still with Hornady at the time, and talked to him about these curves. And... So I worked out dope for these rifles and I had a big spotting scope and tripod. And on the the first stage of King of Two Miles, the first shot was out about 1,550-ish yards. And there were six teams. These are two-man teams that shot ahead of our first guy, who was Dave Walls. And you would get five shots at that first target and you had to hit it at least once to advance to the second target. Well, six teams went up and nobody had hit that target and nobody even knew where the bullets were going. And and I'm starting to get pretty nervous. You know, the big guy is over from the UK and, you know, it doesn't matter how it goes down. If you're the coach, you're responsible for the outcome, right? <laughs> right. I thought, damn, they have to be shooting over the target. The terrain was such that I thought if anybody shot short, we would have seen something, some sort right. of dust or something. Right. Right. And I said to Dave, I said, okay, Dave, I said, we're going to sacrifice the first shot. And I, brought him in two mils lower than my computed dope. So two mils is a lot. Yeah. He fired the first shot and the wind call was perfect. And the bullet hit 
just short of the bottom of the target. And I'm like, yes, we, we got him now. And I, I gave him a correction and I had him shoot quickly and he put the next four shots into that target. And then everybody's like, they're going over. Whatever you do, you're at least, you're probably one and a half to two mils high. Right. So, so we were kind of the guinea pig team and, and uh, both Dave and a gentleman named Graham Creasy, who I coached, uh, made the top 10 cutoff and they got to advance to the second day of shooting. And so that first year, I think there were probably something like about 40-ish shooters, maybe about 20 teams. The second year, it just exploded. I mean, there was like three times as many people and they had to move it to a different location. Mm-hmm. And and guys showed up with some crazy uh, super custom guns and, you know, got all serious. Then. And um, so at, and we went back and shot a second year and the conditions were a lot different. And I, I didn't there were more guys from the UK and it was hard to manage all the dope. But I felt like I had better success with the first year with really two shooters that. I, I had good dope on those guns. And um, and after that, we haven't been back anymore. We've been there uh, to shoot the FCSA when they're wrapping up King of Two Miles. And um, it's become really kind of a science project. And the, I'm not sure. I'm personally not willing to invest the resources and money into one gun to go out there and get to shoot at like five targets. It's incredibly expensive. Um, mm-hmm. The learning from that is that everybody that advances to the second day of shooting, the matches won on day one. Usually the guy who's got the biggest points accumulation from day one is likely to end up winning or placing second. And very few of the shooters, like out of that top 10, I think maybe last year, three people hooked up at two miles. Um, mm-hmm. So the hit probability at two miles is still incredibly low. It's really, it's still very much a crap shoot. If I built a gun to shoot two miles, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be what guys are shooting today. I'd probably come up at 20 millimeter or something, you know. Right. <laughs> now. <laughs> Like an eighty caliber. If you want to hit a target at two miles, you need a you need a gun that you can't fire from the shoulder. In my and I, I don't mean to offend anybody who's having fun with that sport, but um, I think we're still a long way in terms of technology and equipment to be able to reliably engage a target at two miles. But I would agree. it has certainly brought some advancements like scope prisms. Those oh, are yeah. a thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, I do, have, I do have a little bit of experience, but for the, the time I'm able to take away from my job and go shoot, there's other types of shooting I want to do more. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a very... Um, more like a like you said a science project you go out there and it's uh being able to see what 
technology or try to help advance the technology and stuff of that nature. So, yeah, I actually, I like it. I think it's a pretty neat little uh, competition just to watch the guys shoot it. Um, I, again, you, like you said, it, it becomes expensive, you know, and, um, but it's a, a fun science, science project. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, Everything about it is completely experimental. The bullets, many of the cartridges, um, the guns, the optic systems. Um, you know, and there's no doubt any time as a community we go down a road like King of Two Miles, we learn a lot from it. And, and the best of those learnings will filter down into other systems and we'll have a net gain from it. But um, being able to engage targets at two miles is still kind of out there and it's more hope and reality. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say hope is never a strategy. Nope. <laughs> yeah. 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 Not one to bet on uh, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Dave. I was having fun with that. That was my my big uh, thing I wanted to ask you, and I thank you very much for for the. You're response. you're most welcome. I mean, our newest uh, uh, long range gun that's uh, an update of the AX50 is just called the ELR, and it's a multi cal 50 platform. Oh, okay. And uh, that you know you'll be able to run that in 50 or the 408 or 375 shaytac uh you, you know easily it's a no-brainer that you can run a 416 barrett in that but that ability to change barrels i think that gun will appeal to some of those elr and king of two mile shooters and i mentioned that frank green from bartland was here yesterday and and um i'm having I've ordered a couple of test barrels from Bartlin and 375 Shaytac. Like Will Chamberlain, they're making the blanks, but it will be there. They'll finish it 31 inches and be carbon wrapped. Uh, mm. So they won't be quite as long as some of the KO2M barrels, but um, the, weight, the weight of that barrel is really pretty favorable for a 31 inch barrel for a serious ELR gun. I'm anxious to take one of those out west and and you know shoot some long targets with it. You know, yeah. out to the 2500 range. Absolutely. Well, I de I definitely be watching. So when you re video it, uh, make sure you post it because I'll be either watching it live. If you put it on Facebook Live or YouTube, I definitely will be uh, tuning in to watch that to see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. So the the only question that I we really haven't touched on that I had in here was, do you does Accuracy International have an accuracy requirement for their guns? We do. <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's probably the the most open ended question you've asked today. But I will absolutely talk about it. So our standard that we will say publicly is our guns have to shoot at least one MOA with available factory ammunition. And, you know, we live in a world where people brag about their quarter MOA guns, right? And mm -hmm. um, 
But at AI, we live in the world of data and we live in the world where we, we have to make guns that shoot real ammunition that's loaded by major companies. And so, um, you know, we, we get phone calls every week where people are asking that question. And, and a lot of times we're like, well, you mean your gun will only shoot an MOA? I said, I, no, that's not what I said. I said, it must always shoot at least an MOA. But if you were to take, say, one of our AT-308s and just load it up with Federal 168, um, if the conditions are good, those guns will lean hard on a quarter of a minute with factory ammo, right? You go out on a shit day, it might you might struggle to shoot three quarters of a, a minute. So a lot of this is condition dependent, but um, we're looking to bring in a, a new targeting system at the range in the UK and then replicate that here in the US where we'll have an optical target system a company out of Germany called Maton uh, makes them. And as a company, we're going to a mean radius metric to define accuracy. And most shooters don't understand well, what the hell is a mean radius. But the thing about a mean radius is if you shoot five shots or 10 shots, you compute the mean radius, but from all of the shots that you fired, when you say, when somebody says, oh, my gun shoots and say a half a minute of angle for five shots and it's an extreme spread, well, you're throwing away 60% of your data by measuring an ES. And the ES does not tell you anything about the quality of the group. Like what is what is the standard deviation, for example, in vertical and horizontal? Uh, what is the radial standard deviation of, of the group? Um, at AI in the UK, we're, we're making our own cut rifle barrels in house now. And, um, I think tomorrow they'll be testing the first two 6.5 Creedmoor barrels to come off of that rifling machinery. And we had a meeting yesterday <laughs> talking about how they will be tested. And um, Lee Riley had data from a Bartland barrel that, uh, of course, everybody knows how those guns perform. It was chambered uh, here in the U.S. at our, our a company over here. And I think the I think I think the mean radius on that was about out point two for twenty-five data points. Pretty good. Um, and then the horizontal and, and vertical dispersion and the standard deviation when you're able to get this sort of data, you can assess the real performance of a gun. And, and so I think in the future, we won't, it will be harder for us to talk to an average shooter about accuracy in terms that they will understand. But we will certainly have the best data we've ever had about rifle performance. Okay. 
Like I, I, I do a very similar manual test on my personal guns. It takes more time to measure the shots. And I developed a little Excel spreadsheet where um, if I test a 10 shot series out of one of my own guns, I will shoot 10 shots at 10 different aiming points. And when I'm finished, I will measure the vertical and horizontal displacement of the shot from the aim point. So now I have a Cartesian coordinate. And so with 10 shots, I have 10 coordinates and I can put that data into Excel and it will compute uh, the, the horizontal and vertical dispersion. I can, it will compute the standard deviation vertically and horizontally. It will compute the mean radius of the group and it will give me the radial standard deviation. So I have a very complete picture of the performance of every shot that I shot through that gun for testing. Now, do you do you wait a certain period of time in between each shot? Yeah, I still... Yeah, I think I'm getting low on battery on this laptop, by the way. Can okay. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, you are catching your... Um... There's a little hitch in your giddy up at times. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. This battery is uh, this laptop's getting a little bit old. <laughs> and he's frozen. <laughs> I thought that was actually a good question that you asked him about how long he waits in between each shot. Uh, and which is going to be, you know, very interesting. Where hopefully he comes back, he comes back on. Because I'd be curious on how you know his wait time, downtime, you know, pause time, right? You know, whatever word we want to use for it. But that's going to be very interesting to see uh, what what happens there. So, or is the answer I should say, right? Uh, but yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I, I think it's really cool. He's like, man, I'm like, and, and you are in a perfect area to maybe see if you go down there and say, hey, look, uh, I'll help you test it out, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, I would <laughs> because, love to. I know, especially that uh, six five Creedmoor that's coming out or that they're going to take out there. Yeah, it looks man, like they're going to be doing that testing overseas, though, and not here, but still. Yeah, I mean... Maybe he says to test it over there and then bring it back here and test it here. So, you know, yeah, I, I tell you, I love this AI information. This is a uh, good stuff. Uh, like I said, you know, I really never looked into uh, accuracy international. I have heard of it, but I never really delved into it. And now to be able to talk to Scott and to get all this uh, great information, uh, one, like I said earlier, one, the background history about it and what's, what's happening now and all the new products that's coming out. I think that's awesome. So uh, I'm glad that we got this opportunity to actually to speak with Scott about all this great information. There it is. Yeah. Hey, do we have audio? We do now. We do now. All right. I just restarted the uh, live stream software there. Sorry about that. My laptop, I, I wasn't plugged into the charger the battery went completely flat, so I wasn't going to be able to wake it up in time to get 
back. Well, that's all well, I, that's had, all Scott. I had, Scott. That's a lot of that's information, lot of information on, your on your testing, testing that's for sure. That's for sure. Well, I, I hope you got enough for a podcast and, and that uh, listeners enjoy it. It was uh, really a pleasure meeting you guys and getting to talk to you. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, tell you right now you've uh, made, made me start, start to uh, lean, lean towards, towards looking, looking at, at the uh, accuracy and initial, initial product. product so, so I might have, have to, to work, work some, some overtime. overtime. <laughs> well, you won't regret it. You know, people, you hear it a lot. You know, cry uh, once, and um, <laughs> once once you spend the money, you won't regret it. Um, you know, my life is full of um, stuff like that. You know, I I needed a good spotting scope a few years ago. Well, first focal plane with the radical. And I ended up buying a Hensel Spotter 45, and it took me about six months to get my mind right and do it. And then after I bought it, I thought, why did I wait? So an AI is like yeah, that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, I say I thank you very much, much Scott. Scott. I appreciate you coming on here. here. I've got a lot, a lot of good of information. information. I hope, I hope that we, that we can, can maybe, maybe actually, actually all three of us can get together sometime and come down there and see the see your facility and everything. And, uh, by all means, maybe yeah. Even... yeah, and hopefully see you guys at Quantico and do some shooting. Yeah. 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 Well, thanks again, well, thanks Scott. Again, we appreciate Scott. you coming appreciate on. You coming on. Pleasure is all mine. <laughs> well, thanks so much, and thanks again to the audience. I, I hope you enjoyed it. So if you ever have questions, people can always call us at AI here to you know, inform people about our products. Uh, until next time, don't be a little bitch. Yeah.